Hello and welcome to the Talkie Indonesia podcast. I'm your host Dave McRae from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute. And in today's episode, we look back over two decades of democracy in Indonesia, following the fall of President Suharto on 21 May 1998. The 20 years since Suharto resigned in the face of large-scale student protests against his new order regime have been a period of fundamental and undeniable political change, as Suharto-era restrictions on political freedom have been lifted, giving rise to tightly contested elections, a new set of civil society organisations, and a raucous free press. Equally, though, the long shadow of the Suharto era has never entirely lifted. Even today, many of Indonesia's leading political and business figures have carried over from the new order, and nostalgia for Suharto is periodically visible. Where Indonesian democracy is headed remains a matter of animated debate to the present day, both within Indonesia and abroad, as democratic deficits such as pervasive corruption and violations of minority rights remain only too visible. To discuss two decades of post-Sahado governance in Indonesia, I'm joined today by one of Indonesia's most senior human rights activists, Usman Hamid, who is currently director of Amnesty International Indonesia. Among his many previous roles, Usman co-founded the Indonesian branch of online petition platform Change.org in 2012, and has previously also served as coordinator of CONTRAS, the Commission for Missing Persons and Victims of Violence. At the time of Sahato's resignation, Usman was head of the Student Senate at Trisakti University in Jakarta, which became indelibly associated with the anti-Sahato protests after four of its students were shot dead by the security forces nine days before Sahato ultimately resigned. Usman, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Dave. Thank you. This is a, an honor for me to be in this uh, podcast. Thanks again. And a great pleasure to, to have you on Talking Indonesia today. Now, could I start by asking you, we're both about the same age. Uh, we were both in the latter half of our undergraduate university degrees back in 1998 when Sahato stepped down. What are your memories of the Sahato regime prior to his resignation? And do you remember when you first felt that Sahato had to go? I remember, I do remember. I think it was in one of the classes in my university back in early 90s when I was attending a class uh, discussing on the agrarian reform. So I studied particularly with the subject of agrarian law. So I was raising question to my professor why the poor people in Indonesia have no land, whereas the, the law said at least the peasant have to have at least five hectares of land. And while the rich people have at the maximum 25 hectares of land, the reality is completely different. And my professor was getting back to me by a very whispering answer. No, that's too political question. So it was, it was a time where I also see my family back in Bogor in West Jaffa, two hours or three hours from Jakarta who are over time losing more of their land. There's a kind of involution of the land. And many cases in West Java showed how the government took over the land for what they called pembangunan or development by means of human rights violations. There was no freedom at all by the peasants. And back in my university, there was no freedom of academic lecturer. So there was no freedom at all. So I felt like the regime had something wrong in it, and Suharto has to step down. 
And it's even worse when we were in the late 90s facing the monetary crisis in Asia. And what was the impact of that monetary crisis, I guess, on you personally as a student or on the peasants whose land rights had captured your attention? People, especially those poor people, peasants, uh, or those in even in urban areas in Jakarta, can no longer afford the basic needs of buying rice, of buying sugar, of buying salt. My mom was at the time having many religious ceremonies, empowering women, especially from the poor. And she led this movement of responding to crisis by organizing a lot of events in order to help the poor to respond to the crisis, providing a very cheap basic needs for the people. And I was, as a student activist, uh, mobilized a number of friends of mine who are activists to help my mom as well. So it was a kind of somehow connected between what I do at home and what I do at the university. And it was in May that everything's getting worse. Uh, there was a worsening monetary crisis, and we were in the middle of the movement to change the status quo. I was uh, in my university wearing my jacket, listening to many students' speeches, uh, and we were all in the same feeling that Suharto had to step down. And I mean, were you openly calling for Suharto to step down at that point? Calling Suharto to step down was a very sensitive topic at the time. It was a bit taboo topic, uh, although it, it appears in a very limited uh, circle of uh, students' public study club discussion. The main, the main theme at the time was more on criticisms against the People Consultative Assembly for what they do in March, inaugurating Suharto as a president for the seven times. So if we look back into uh, the demonstration back in May 12th, the banners uh, at the time were all about Sidang Empire were all about the People Consultative General Assembly inaugurating uh, Suharto for the seventh time. But the demonstration went even further by some action by the students burning Suharto's photo in the middle of the demonstration. So that was a kind of beginning how students shift the demand from bringing down the price of the basic needs or turunkan harga into bringing down Suharto and Keluarga, or bringing down Suharto and the family, in a literal way. And, I mean, when did you start to believe that Suharto would definitely step down? I think when the students started to mobilize in a nationwide scale, coming to our university in 12th of May in the middle of the night, and then 13th of May, 14th of May. So more and more students coming from different universities, not only those who are in Jakarta, based in Jakarta, but also across Java, also from Sumatra, from Sulawesi, and from different uh, universities in different uh, regions. So it was a kind of, well, the feeling was revolution. <laughs> but of course, it wasn't a revolution. It was a kind of a more what we called a reform movement. And so the mobilization was peaking, more and more students were gathering. I mean, you had these large protests, I recall, on the day that Sahado stepped down with students occupying the, the parliament building in Jakarta. Is that where you were when he announced on television that he was stepping down as president? Yes, I was in the parliament building when he announced the designation. I, was, I went back and forth from Trisakti to the parliament building. 
with my with a number of friends. And what was the mood like when that announcement came? Unbelievable. It was a, a surprising news, but also a happy moment, I would say, apart from the grievances that we still feel uh, after the killing in my university and also after a number of riots broke up in Jakarta and also a number of other places. When you heard that Sahado stepped down, did you see that as the end of your protests or did the goals of the reform movement at that time go beyond that? I had a mixed feelings at the time, especially since I came from a more intra-base uh, student activism or student organizations, in which at the time, the tone of the movement was a kind of more like a moral force, a moral movement rather than a political movement. What we understand at the time from this uh, categorization was after toppling down so hard, to, we had to go back to university and continue studying. While the second uh, understanding on what we call a more political movement is that we had to capture the state or to take over uh, the political structure in a deeper engagement. But I think, to be honest, I was at the first understanding in which I saw a student movement as a more moral force rather than a political movement. Only after I joined opposition figures in the Legal Aid Institute in El Beha, where intellectuals, NGOs, even opposition party, uh, radical students get together there, I realized that this is not only a moral force of the movement, but rather a bigger or wider opposition movement of the whole components of society. And I mean, if... After Sahado fell, students withdrew to campus on the basis of being a moral movement. Who really was able to position themselves at the helm of the post-Sahato reform movement in those early moments? In those early moments, I think four figures. Number one was Abdurrahman Wahid, the leader of the Nahdatul Ulama, and also a very prominent intellectual and activist at the Forum Democracy or Democracy Forum. And secondly was, of course, Megawati Sukarnaputri. She was a kind of symbol of opposition forces at the time, with her party being attacked, being interfered by Suharto's army. And thirdly was Amin Rais. He was the chairman of Muhammadiyah. Uh, the second uh, largest Muslim organization in Indonesia, and also a very critical professor among many other university professors criticizing Suharto's power. And fourthly was a sultan in Yogyakarta, Sri Sultan Hamengkubuwono. So the four prominent leaders were promoted by mostly of the students' protest groups across spectrums. Looking back, that's a very influential group. Both Abdurrahman Wahid and Megawati Sukarno Putri, of course, would go on to be presidents of Indonesia. What sort of agenda were those four figures pushing at the time? Number one is on the dual function of the Indonesian armed forces. This is about the doctrine that justified the role of the military or the army in political structure, in the government, in the parliament, in state enterprise, and many other 
uh, government sectors at all level, from local, uh, regional to the national uh, level. And secondly, apart from the, the reform of the, the Indonesian armed forces, was the trial for Suharto and his crony. So this is uh, the most important agenda to push for after Suharto stepped down. The third issue was on the human rights. I think it was mostly related to mass atrocities during Suharto for more than 30 years, including atrocities taking place in Timor, in Papua and in, in Aceh. How has progress been on those three core issues? Ending the military's non-security role, bringing Sahado and his cronies to trial, and broader justice for past human rights abuses? I think in terms of reforming the armed forces to withdraw from political role was somehow very slow. I think even until the new government led by Abdurrahman Wahid uh, took over power, it wasn't easy for the civilian, the newly elected government, to withdraw the military from political role. Not until the military himself decided to, to stay out of politics in 2004, just before the adoption of the new law on Indonesian armed forces. On the second agenda, it is also uh, a very uh, slow pace uh, agenda with the trial of Suharto. I think President Wahid pushed very hard to make sure that the law enforcement concerning uh, corruption involving Suharto and his crony was taken into court. Since Suharto was, uh, had to be taken care of the hospital several times, the court process went very, very slow. And apart from that, there was a kind of political instability across the country, especially after the communal violence broke up in Maluku, in Sampit, and also in Poso, in Sulawesi. So when Suharto died during uh, Yudhoyono's administration, the government uh, has not uh, withdrawn his, his legal status as a suspect of a corruption. And even after the death of Suharto, the government continued to bring the case of corruption related to the foundation belonged to Suharto's family into court, although it wasn't successful at the end. While on the human rights enforcing the law based on, based on truth or justice, I think has since failed. A zero accountability. We saw uh, two major important cases to be brought into accountability. Number one was a crimes against humanity in East Timor during the referendum in 1999. Number two was the ad hoc human rights court for mass killing in 1984 in Tanjung Prek. Both of them end up with a zero accountability. No one being taken into, for example, prison for what they did in the past. Okay. So, I mean, when you look back at progress on three of those key agendas, it's pretty clear that democratic reform faced some very formidable obstacles where, you know, very little progress on bringing Sahado to justice or on redress for parts human rights abuses and perhaps marginally more success in confining the military to a, to a purely security role. What were those obstacles to democratic reform? And do you think that in hindsight, there's more that the reform movement could have done to counter those obstacles? 
I think, number one, it's primarily because of weak rule of law, the absence of independent judiciary. And this has resulted from a very long period of time under Suharto, where the judiciary was subordinate to the government, especially to the central government. And secondly, I think it was because of the, what I called, a kind of ideological fixation. Human rights have always been denied with the pretext of development, with the pretext of economic growth or security is more important than human rights. And this was the case where I think, especially uh, during Megawati's uh, administration, it was the beginning of the new global shift across the globe after 9-11. And it put aside the agenda of human rights from the government's priority. And security was becoming more and more important than human rights. And thirdly, I think this is what the scholars or some scholars believe to be the powerful existence of oligarch. It consists of the army oligarch and the civilian oligarchs who control the majority of the material wealth uh, of the country and also control most of the most uh, dominant political party and media to some extent. So these three obstacles, I think, have been challenges for reform. And it could have been better, I think, if, from an activist point of view, if we, as an activist or as part of the wider social movement actors, can better organize ourselves and addressing collectively all agenda in a more organized way, I think. I think. Yeah, that's a really interesting set of obstacles. And of course, I, I wouldn't want to give the impression that the story of democratic reform has solely been one of setbacks. What would you see as some of the key achievements of the reform movement over, over the past 20 years? Of course, Indonesia is no longer in uh, economic crisis. Of course, compared to Malaysia, for example, Malaysia has done better, much better. But I think, despite of all comparison, Indonesia has also done quite good in recovering economic crisis at the time. And number two, I think, in the area of constitutional amendment, decentralizing power, limiting the central government authority is very, very important as a, as a foundation to prevent the repetitions of the authoritarian government or leaders in the future. I think there are more and more opening up of the space for free speech in a culture of silence of society at that time. Expressing opinion is a luxury. And now you see every day people express their opinions, people uh, expose abuses, people mobilize protests. So this is something that I that make me grateful of what we have achieved in reform agenda. And I mean, if you looked at the past 20 years in totality, how would you, I guess, characterize the overall trajectory of reform or the overall state of democracy? And are there key moments you can identify where the trajectory either changed or the outcomes of reform were, were set in place? Uh, I guess, tipping points, if you like. It has been up and down to see the reform change taking place in Indonesia. In the beginning of reform, it was a kind of hopeful period of time in which we have all kinds of new legal venues for citizens to file complaints, 
will have a new phases in the parliament, for example, in the government, in which they over a hopeful promises for Indonesia. And if we measure it with some democracy index, for example, I think not only that Indonesia was able to, to move from not free country into partly free in, the, in 1999 until 2005. And even in 2006, Indonesia became a free country, according to Freedom House, for example. And many international scholars, international leaders, indexers have also praised Indonesia for democratic reform, especially in the area of electoral process. Every five years, we had election taking place, having any political parties to, to compete, uh, new leaders to compete. And after 19 years, I guess the fact that Indonesia has gone through a series of elections without a military coup, such as in Thailand or such as in Egypt, I think uh, it shows the resilience of Indonesian democracy after almost 20 years. And although in recent years, at least for the last one or two years, has been a bad year for Indonesia, not only for Indonesia, I guess for many countries across, across the globe facing a democratic recession. Turning for a second from Indonesia's broader democratic trajectory to your own experiences since the fall of Suharto. I mean, obviously you've risen to be one of Indonesia's most prominent human rights activists. What was it that initially pushed you down that path? Shooting against students and subsequently uh, the riot and of course political kidnapping of student activists. That was atrocity that brought me into human rights activism and joining Contrast, founded by the late Munir, a very prominent human rights activist, was very focal in Suharto time and was found dead, was poisoned to death in 2004, six years after the fall of Suharto. So it was a bit more on the civil and political freedom rather than something that I, uh, in the beginning, had most interested on, like land rights. Of course, if we look uh, into the detail of many political oppression, it has also very much related to the economic grievances or land-based disputes as a root cause of state violence. You mentioned you joined Contrasts initially because of those incidents of state violence that immediately preceded the end of Sahado's rule, the shootings at Trisakti, the abduction and disappearances of anti-regime activists and the large-scale riots that happened in Jakarta right before the Suharto regime fell. I mean, how great a problem has it been for Indonesian democracy that we've seen continuing impunity for the most part for those incidents and and for some of the other human rights abuses that you mentioned earlier? I think it it is a a grave issue uh, as it proves that atrocities of human rights violation, like those you mentioned earlier, I think escape prosecutions. Uh, And since there is no accountability measure for these major uh, atrocities, it shows just how much influence and power they have to mold the system in the government in a way that would allow them to be above the law. Uh, The army, for example, 
And this, uh, of course, uh, certainly suppresses the freedom of expression, creating a, a climate of fear uh, of being the next victims. In the case of May Riot, for example, this is a more racial hatred-related violence. Uh, we've seen in 2016, 2017, how bad the divisive politics used by the political elites, by the conservative elites, to gain their support, to gain their political legitimacy. The imprisonment of Jakarta governor, a non-Muslim or a Chinese Christian governor, is a fact that shows the ultimate negative impact if we fail to address the racial violence back in 98, in the May riot, for example. I think it raises the question of how democratic are we, a country, really? And that even though the people have the right to vote, how much of that vote is genuine and, and uninfluenced by the powerful few? I think this is exactly something, I think, missing from many observation on Indonesian democracy. Many observers have mostly focused on praising Indonesia for uh, electoral process rather than measuring how great uh, a problem for Indonesian democracy in, on the, in the area of impunity for past abuses. The recent attacks against NGOs or the recent attacks against religious minority or sexual and gender minority is an example of the repetition of violence during Soeharto time in the more contemporary politics. How satisfied do you think the public in Indonesia is with the current state of Indonesian democracy? Last year, there was a survey uh, led by Saiful Mujani Research and Consulting. I think it still shows the belief of the majority of Indonesian population in democracy. So it is something uh, hopeful. But I think people confuse democracy and human rights uh, as if that uh, bringing democracy will ultimately bring human rights. Uh, whereas someone like me, I, I differentiate the two uh, into a very different kind of dreams or goal or goals or idealism. Um, Democracy is very important to bring down order in regime, but that doesn't guarantee the, the protection of human rights, uh, let alone the uh, ending of impunity for mass atrocities of the pre-democratic era. And, but of course, the fact that people still believe in democracy as the only game in town, and the majority of them believe in that, is, is something very important as the basis to continue fighting for uh, a more quality democracy with human rights to be protected, with accountability to be held by those responsible for human rights violations. And I think 20 years is a kind of two-thirds of our journey to fix the inherited problems of the 32 years of Suharto's time. So I think maybe we need some time. I, I think we have to work much harder with much patience for another one-third period of time in order to really address fundamental issues inherited from the dictatorial time of Suharto. I mean, that's, a, that's an interesting point that democracy doesn't guarantee progress on human rights issues. Do you think the community in Indonesia supports the human rights activism of organizations like Contrast, like Amnesty, and the other human rights groups in Indonesia? In 
the early years of reform, we had a lot of support from across spectrums of society coming from the left concerning uh, the masculine of the of those per perceived to be communists or those communists in Suharto time uh, to the right political spectrum of the society those islamists for example were also victimized by state violence in Suharto time in the early years we were all uh, united to to call for justice and accountability but in recent years, I think there's a kind of backlash or a kind of pushback here and there in which divisive rhetorics, the politics of scapegoating to communist scapegoating minority or Chinese uh, Christian or uh, LGBT groups community becoming more and more uh, accepted by some uh, significant portion of the population. And this is not an exceptional of Indonesia, this is a phenomenon across the globe. To which I have a mixed feeling of whether Indonesian society will continue to support human rights when they have to deal with very rigid or specific rights of minority, transgender women in Aceh, for example. Okay, so, I mean, once the focus of human rights activism became protecting the rights of specific minorities, it's been much harder to gain broader public support. Would that be a... Yes, exactly. Yes. One of the massive transformations that has happened, not just in Indonesia, but across the world over the past 20 years has been the spread of the internet and social media. How has the emergence of internet and social media changed political contestation in Indonesia? In the beginning, it changed a lot. For example, in the election of Jakarta gubernatorial position in back in 2012, social media had played a very important role for people to express their opinions, to gather more information about the candidates, to interact with the candidates' influential figures, to track down the track records of the candidates. And the, the victory of Joko Widodo, the then governor of Jakarta at the time, and Ahok, the vice governor, have been perceived to be the victory of the role of social media. But I think that people started to realize that a tool remains a tool. Internet is just an internet. In Back in 2017, when people seen the defeat of Ahok, many of them have also believed that social media is not everything. So I believe that it can bring both. Uh, I mean, social media or technology can be used as a tool for the purpose of liberation, but also it can be used for the purpose of other things, such as the cyber authoritarianism, censorship, constant surveillance, even worse per, uh, repercussion in the forms of violence such as in, in Papua. So uh, I believe that change started with the adoption of new behavior rather than the adoption of technologies. Finally, you mentioned earlier you see Indonesia as two-thirds of the way along its post-Saharto journey. What is the final destination of that journey, do you think? Do you see the next 10 years as a period where further democratic reform is possible, or are we looking at a period of regression or even unwinding of democracy? I think the challenge for Indonesia's future 
trajectory of democracy would be the extent to which the minority rights guaranteed. We should measure a democracy of a country to be successful by measuring not only how leaders uh, are elected in a fair election, but more importantly, how leaders who are uh, elected and rule the power protecting minority. I think social movement actors remains to be a very influential and determined actor. And of course, a political party remains to be very important. I do hope Indonesia's future trajectory would be able to protect minority. Usman, a slightly worrying note to end on, and there's a lot more I could ask you in truth, but I'm afraid we're well and truly out of time. Thanks so much for sharing your insights with us today. It's been great. Thanks so much, Dave. Again, this is an honor, and thank you so much. All the best for you. That was Usman Hamid, Director of Amnesty International Indonesia. If you enjoy Talking Indonesia, do us a favor and rate or review the podcast wherever you listen to it. Remember, of course, you can access the entire archive of episodes at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, via iTunes, or your favorite podcasting app. Do also check out the broader series of articles on the 20-year anniversary of Suharto's fall on the Indonesia at Melbourne blog at present. Talking Indonesia returns on 24 May with my co-host Dr. Gemma Purdy. Until then, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.